When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, this is Samson Folk. Welcome to the Rapcast, Raptors podcast, etc. Whether you're watching on the YouTube channel or listening via the podcast channel, it's all good. Thanks for tuning in. Today, another one of the episodes from the Outside Looking In series where 29 episodes where I talk to somebody from every market covering every or who's in tune with a team and we kind of reference that team against the Raptors so we can learn about what people think about the Raptors, develop a consensus but also you listening to all these episodes can really get a good grasp of the league. And today, Mike Prada, who is an editor at The Athletic, but has a book called Spaced Out coming on November 1st. We've talked about it a little bit on an episode last season. Mm -hmm. Really interesting insights coming forward. But we're here to talk about the Wizards and the Raptors. Mike, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. I, I'm feeling good. I, I like that you started to say in market and then you had to stop yourself because I'm obviously not in DC. Uh, but I still watch this sick, sad franchise. <laughs> well, that's we'll start on the the inverse, I suppose, not the sick, sad franchise, which is <laughs> I'm interested to see how we follow that thread. But the Raptors, we zoom out. And what are your big takeaways from last season and into this season? What this team kind of looks like to you? I mean, it looks about the same, right? I mean, they haven't done a whole lot yet. Um, I'm a little surprised that they haven't been more aggressive for Donovan Mitchell. Maybe they're lurking in the shadows somewhere because it seems like he has a lot of what they really need. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, from afar, they're just sort of a team that I like is interesting from a lot. Like they're the basketball laboratory with this Project 6-8 thing. Uh, and one of the things I'm actually kind of curious to see going forward and just from an idea standpoint is like, is this project six, eight thing, like actually like they're so married to it that they're willing to do it no matter what, or would it be nice to actually have somebody who's taller than six, eight protecting the rim or somebody who can actually like run a pick and roll, you know, I'd be curious to see like kind of how that works out. Cause I mean, we're talking about these two teams, the Raptors have been in on, we're in on sort of in on Porzingis, right. Uh, before they went to the Wizards. That was like another team where they were looking at. So maybe they're out on the Project 6 thing. I don't know. Just intellectually, I'm curious about that. As far as how good the team is, you know, it'll probably be about as good as they were last year, I would think. And the big question is how big a step does Scotty Barnes take? You know, I don't think that that's any different. But stylistically, I imagine they're going to play the same way that they did. I, I had a piece just come up this morning, actually, where I was talking about in the innovation of their defense and talking about how, you know, a lot of what happens in the NBA is first seen in Europe and that's where it establishes its foothold defensively. And then, you know, you talked about, it's nice to have a big guy looking back to Raptors teams that achieved better defensive ratings, higher turnover percentages, and they did not feature mobile active, you know, smaller bigs, but Marcus Saul. Mm -hmm. So is is there what are you trying to accomplish with this role and with this version of basketball if you can achieve these things with players who have better feel defensively and maybe know the shortcuts rather than have longer arms or maybe a quicker foot speed and stuff like that. And it, it should be interesting in year two to see how the shortcuts develop for the existing players and how they work with each other and see how they can ramp it up. Because, you know, in the NBA, I think there's always been decent return for you know teams that return the same players it's it's really interesting to think about what the the ceiling is of this style of basketball and i think we talked during last season you said at least it's interesting oh, and it's i think i do very interesting <laughs> it's very interesting you know it's, 
It's interesting you brought up Marcus Salt because actually I was on Nate Duncan's podcast to talk about the Wizards earlier this week, and we talked a little bit about how undisruptive the Washington Wizards defense was. They, I think, were one of the lowest turnover forcing teams in like NBA history. And I was saying a little bit about how I was hoping to see that jump up a little bit. And the conversation started to turn to, you know, can you be disruptive if you have a tall big that you want to play in a drop or someone who like Porzingis or like Daniel Gafford, who's not mobile. And I, one of the examples I raised was, well, Toronto did it with Marcus all, you know, you wouldn't think that Toronto could be super disruptive with that as your anchor, but it seems to me like, especially given some of the changes in how perimeter defense, perimeter help defense, it seems to me that that's become much more aggressive over the past three or four years. Uh, why can't you? Why can't you have play the same way and just have that lurking anchor in the back? In some ways, perhaps having that player actually enhances what you're trying to do. Uh, so that's why I'm kind of curious. Like Project 6-8 is like a cool phrase that we like in the media as fans. It's like kind of a fun way to describe what they're doing. I don't even remember exactly how that phrase started. Was that something that like Toronto people started saying or was that like a – organic nickname that came about i just i've read it a lot in eric kareen stories and i love the phrase <laughs> so i don't know where it came from but um, i think it's bobby webster had a project six eight or project six nine something like that he um it's a good tagline for sure like there's there's something <laughs> about i when i was talking to blake on the raptor show i think i asked him like when you talk to Bobby Webster, ask him if he knows like how effective the propaganda of that that <laughs> interview was, where he's like, "Yeah, just you know, like Project Six Nine or whatever." It's like it, people they they clasped onto it for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun name. It sort of speaks to like the secret code, um, like we're a double O seven agent or something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or like one of the like you're you know how TV shows like have code names for things they don't want to reveal. They call it like kind of this character is named access with project six eight sounds like but for real though like how literally would you do you think that they really take project six eight like i don't think it's a i think it's more a mindset than a literal thing <laughs> you know you I, can still play six eight with i mean miles turner or i mean pick your big that they've been rumored for in the last two years like to anchor it up mm-hmm. after mccasall's left it seems like it's not about the the size of the player. It's about the style. So to me, I've never understood why, and maybe this is a figure, a problem we've had of how we talk about it. Why can't you play like the Raptors, but also have a guy, a big man dropping back, protecting the rim? To me, it, they, they can go hand in hand quite easily. And I, I'd be curious to see whether it's personnel, whether it's style, whether the Raptors are able to do that. So it's interesting because some people, myself included, have – openly wondered about the limit like how limiting it is to think of it in terms of like yeah these types of players or this you only get the advantages if everybody's between six seven and six nine but somehow fred van vliet is heavily correlated with winning minutes right. in this scheme yeah i and, guess that, that would be the opposite sort of side yeah of <laughs> yeah and there's still the fan base really loves that identity because it's cool to have an identity as a team and as a fan base that you know they'll, they'll turn their noses up if you look at some of the conversations, you say, wow, they could be lurking for Donovan Mitchell. I also think Donovan Mitchell, offensively, like as far as gettable guys being a fit, wow. He he would elevate a lot of what they do, and that seems mm-hmm. so intuitive. Defensively, you have to see a return to a former self to get more out of him. But I, I think probably the defensive stuff is a little bit overdone but anyway raptors fans are resistant to that because of his size that is so weird to me <laughs> i mean it's i get it but it's so funny i mean donna mitchell's a better fit with toronto than he's with new york right? totally yeah <laughs> like, i mean we can at least say that i don't yeah. know how he fits with new york i mean new york will take him he's donovan mitchell but yeah that's so funny to me like they are at this threshold it's it, it is a funny thing but it also speaks a little bit to the threshold that toronto is at now where they had this one fun season where they legitimately did play. Everybody was the same size and it was fun and cool and nerds like us enjoyed it. But you know, there is a ceiling to that and it can be very challenging to maintain the guts of what made project six. That should be two 
two two of these project six eight work but you know evolve it so that you can have a little bit more diversity in your attack and your defense and the way you play like a really simple way of putting it is there is a ceiling on project six eight and it is probably not too far off how last season went would you agree with that i think that's probably correct i think that their defense certainly it wouldn't surprise me if they have a better defensive year this year but also they were fourth in defensive rating like post all-star break and they still had blow-up performances against the 76ers historically bad defensive rating in the combination of games one and two Mm -hmm. put yourself behind the eight ball to play this way and it, it is because they don't have that big in the middle I do wonder what the ceiling is if you're just, and this is the other question too, is are they targeting these players because they think it's market inefficiency or are, and they're like, well, this is who we can get in Toronto and we think we can develop this small thing that makes these players viable role players. We stock up the back end, we make a consolidation trade. I don't know what the end game is, but it seems like it'd be tough to view the end game as it's truly five six eight guys out on the court and they're in the nba finals and they play hellish defense and they have like creation from all over the four other teams are so good that you wonder if that would ever work but it's it's a lot of questions up in the air fewer answers from me as far as that goes yeah i mean in fairness to the raptors they had a lot of injuries in that philly series (laughs) or at least guys who were playing hurt but you're right. I mean, it was a, a great illustration of some of the limits of how they play because they played a team that had personnel that were able to exploit it, whether it was uh, Embiid, obviously, but also to some degree like Tyrese Maxey and his ability to kind of zip through some of those awesome. spaces that uh, you know the Raptors will give up. Uh, but look, this is this is what's challenging about building a team and identity because there is such there's in the in the book. One of the chapters is about this positionalist concept. Um, and obviously Project 6-8, too many people is seen as the, this is positionalist basketball. This is like kind of the most extreme version. These are the, the platonic ideals. I make a comparison in the chapter to Billy Knight, the old Hawks GM. Do you, I think most listeners probably know who he was. He had this fetish with players who were 6-8. Um, I think he said at one point, uh, and that's quoted in the book, like six eight is the perfect height for a basketball player. But those teams were never they made he made a lot of mistakes being blinded by I've got to find a guy who's six eight, whether it was draft mistakes, whether it was coaching fit, all of that, because all he could see was these guys had to be this size, and that was what it was. But it wasn't the the beauty of that size or that style is not. Literally, like we've got to find guys. It, that's just as much of a pigeonholing as we used to do with like kind of the five positions, right? T- there is a risk of going that far if you're talking about like literally everybody's got to be six eight. There is also a risk of going too far in the other direction and you lose the core of what you are. The hardest thing to do, I think, is to be able to balance those two things so that you retain the guts of what you are while also kind of evolving in ways that kind of grow you towards the top of the league. Uh, And I think that's the dilemma that existentially they're going to face for sure. How that plays out on the court is going to be kind of interesting because I mean, what exactly is the state of Pascal OG Scotty at this point that like sort of trio? I mean, there was a lot of noise about OG maybe wanting to be traded, maybe feeling a little bit left out. It was, Maybe he wasn't demanding out, I think, but there was there is there appears to be some like sort of stylistic friction there in terms of where they want to play. Is that something that can be resolved organically, or is that something that they should be anticipating now and putting OG in a trade or putting one of those other guys in a trade? That is sort of maybe the um actual nuts and bolts of this existential crisis to me and i'm curious what you think about that so that's really interesting because og and this is when all that trade stuff came out and i did coverage on it i thought that it was fair for og to want more touches i believe that reporting now 
Nobody said he requested a trade. That wasn't Jake Fisher's reporting. I haven't seen that reported. But it was that he wanted more touches. This is something that Nick Nurse talked about during numerous press conferences, during the post-game, pre-game, all this kind of stuff, that they're looking to get OG touches. They OG was there despite not being their most efficient, but he was their number one usage post-up player. And that's because those are static possessions where you can get a guy a touch. And he can do the early work in transition and pin a guy under the basket and get a touch. And so you could tell they were trying to force it in there. But additionally, OG had horrific returns as an isolation scorer. Really, and, a pick and, really, roll, and a pick and roll player yeah, as well. Yeah. And the, the isolation maybe is a higher sticking point because there was so much more usage in that, that play type. Pick and roll... Man, I've seen Norm Powell go 96th percentile for a year. So it's like, it's funky, especially with who you're right. But But OG, as far as self-creation, it's a term I use, workout ball, where it's like you're doing your workout where you're getting that. to your spots. Yeah, I love that term. That's great. I might, yeah. might steal it. I have a little graphic I'll put on screen. It's, it'll be good. Workout ball. I like it. Yeah. I love it. Like, for example, okay. if we're talking the Wizards, Riha Chamar is currently owning workout ball. He's a workout ball guy, yeah. Yeah, I love and it. So, yeah, and so OG, I think you'd probably agree, is sitting at a very high percentile of just strictly role player. He hits roughly around 40% and upwards of his catch-and-shoot threes. He has, like, that sidestep triple he can hit. He can get, like, he finishes everything at the rim. He defends really well. He's a great cutter. All of that stuff says, okay, try and take the next step. And the next step has been going poorly. So what do you do? Because he clearly wants to improve his game. He wants to become better and get paid more. The Raptors maybe aren't in a position to house that development because they have other burgeoning skills and they just invested in Helio Siakam and had really great returns. He carried, you, he got, carried, you got some great phrases right now. Helio Siakam. <laughs> right. But it's... um. But so where does OG fit? And so OG fits the it be, the moment he starts performing better. Like maybe the, maybe the gym is really good to him this season and he comes back. Or maybe he says, I'll grow in other ways and I'm focusing on role player stuff this year and I'll, I'll kind of branch out in my how I attack closeouts and where I kind of, mm-hmm. the jazz of basketball that comes after that. But I'm not really sure because he has to be better at things to justify the team giving him those possessions. But also, he's, of course, allowed to want those possessions. So I don't yeah. know if it's if it's two things that just can't be compatible, but I hope that they can. Well, the, the real germane question is whether there are things that can be compatible with the Raptors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Which I think is a slightly different question than whether they can be compatible because – I mean, this also, again, we're going back to the 6-8 thing. The the whole point, you had the whole like sort of sort of differentiating factor of how the Raptors work is you've got Pascal and Scotty and OG. None of them are point guards. None of them are like pick and roll players, you know, guys that um, they have the ability to set others up, but they are three players who part of the appeal of what they can do is if they've got a smaller guy in them, they can basically barricade them to where they want to go. Or even if it's a like size guy, that's kind of how they play. So, or at least two of them. And then one who would like to be that type of player, let's say that. So if you're so committed to having this size and being just this giant team on the perimeter, you are going to sacrifice like you have sacrificed whatever space that OG may need to develop these skills. So the reason I think that's sort of where that kind of fits this challenge is that you are essentially deciding forget how tall OG is, but I think it's like sort of in the background. You're essentially asking yourself, can those three skill sets forgetting size fit in an, in a system of certainly of offense that like would require like it is a very your turn my turn setup mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and 
you know, if that's the answer to your question is yes, what do you need to make that work? And what sacrifices are you willing to make to your identity to make that work? Um, and if there is just nothing that is really remotely viable to make that th those three guys play effectively in the best versions of themselves at the same time, which I think you and I would both agree has not happened. Didn't happen last year either. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, part of the reason there is this challenge is that Pascal is out a while that OG was out a while and they never really got the reps, but what actually do you need to make that work? Do you need to just have a center who is just, a, just stands around the, the rim or it stands around the three point line in spaces and just doesn't really have her get the ball. And he's not really a pick and roll player. If that's the case, can you find that guy without sacrificing your core identity? It, it, there are just a lot of questions to be asked about all these sorts of things. And, you know, that's why I think if, if you're Toronto and I think you're trying to take the next step, you either need to resolve this OG dilemma at some point and find someone who's a better fit in that sort of slot, whether it's, again, any position, or you need to really think to yourself, do we care so much about Project 6-8? I mean, are we willing to moderate Project 6-8, whether it's in size or style? Mm -hmm. I think that's a tough question. Until they figure that out, I think they are kind of where they were last year, which is a very nice, fun team, but ultimately one with a lot of flaws. Um, and that's if Scotty Barnes becomes the player we all hope he can be. Like, I mean, to me, like if you're looking at the runway for how does Scotty Barnes become this great player that solves all these challenges, you're you're you need to reshape certain things in order for him to do that. I think, you know. He could. He will get better. He is very versatile and creative, and they are very versatile and creative and fun. But you know, it's not like he's going to be become like kind of one of the five best players in the league by accident, just by getting older. You know what I mean? Like something has got to change in that setup, and it's something about Project Six A has got to evolve long term. This is a very like esoteric, like kind of philosophical question. I realize, but it's. Yeah, I do think it has practical implications. It's. So on the one hand, you can improve some of these things by, and maybe maybe I disagree with you as far as the Pascal not being a pick and roll player. I think it's I think that that is um, there, I, and I quite frankly I think that's something that Nick Nurse has ignored, and the pick and roll is something do that you, Nick. Do Nurse, you think he's a, do you think he's ignored, or do you think it's because Pascal wants to not run it as much as he wants to do his little like kind of. Back down, back down, back down, back down, wiggle, 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 spin, spin, cycle stuff. I'm sure that um, Pascal enjoys his isolations. He, he I believe, is 804 to Lucas 799. Pascal was the league leader in isolations. He's also the league leader in minutes per game and closeouts, which is absurd. But uh, his pick and roll um, frequency doubled from the regular season to the playoffs. So when the nitty gritty and he had to try and score against Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris and um, pack line defense and stuff like that, he was like, I need a screen and I need to get to spots. And he was quite successful as the hub in that yeah, series. That's true. He was. Now, the, then the question becomes, where are the other four players standing? Who is he running it with? Right. Where, where is OG just still chill in the corner? Is there a, is there a guy in the dunker spot? Is there, if that, if, if that's not Barnes, then where are you putting the center? Where are you putting Fred Van Fleet? Are you running it? Are you, you know what I mean? Like these are sort of challenges I think that are going to be tricky mm -hmm. to work out and their existing personnel is kind of, they have solved the problem essentially by just crashing the hell out of, like basically trying to pin people in in this very creative, mm -hmm. like sort of counterintuitive style. Um, but now the league has a year of tape on that. They they had a few lineups that had forty percent offensive rebounding rates, which and and at decent um, use, well, I guess minutes played and stuff like that. And to your point about who 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 is in the weak side corner that you know salvages the spacing, it's been OG. The the structure of the Raptors offense. Exactly. Is, there you is, go. For the health of, of what we're doing here, you have to be there. And, you know, above the break is always, well, actually in the second half of the season, it was Precious. And Precious had um, four catch-and-shoot three-point attempts per game uh, post-All-Star break. He hit 40%. Who knows if that's sticking around, and especially 
It's encouraging above, though. Above the break threes was quite encouraging, but yeah, the Raptors have a spacing problem that only gets better if Pascal is better above the break than you know he has been. If Scotty develops it, if Precious sticks around, whatever, because they have proven shooters on the team, but not very many of them. It's it's really right. interesting. But well, we and should... then also also if you put more of them in, you suffer defensively. You know, mm-hmm. Achua. I think you've you've hyped that dude up for two years now. I, I'm starting to see why you think he's so why he's so important to this all working. He's great defensively, man. I like he's very raw, but you can see uh, he's getting better. But you can see why they gave him all those minutes. I think they see like, oh, this is a player that we can stick in. To your point, stick at the top of the key. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Anyway, go on. Yeah, precious, <laughs> precious is probably the. Watching Siakam problem solve this year was one of the coolest things, but Precious kind of going from where he was to where he ended up was incredible. But we should probably do Wizards at some point. Do we point. have to? Do we have to? <laughs> hey, <yeah. laughs> so the Wizards, I kind of, I want you to just kind of fill me in on what's happening there. They have interesting players, but they also have, you know, identity is not really there and what this team is going to look like. I thought that team prior to last season was going to be, be pretty good. I saw, I've always liked Gafford a lot. Um, I was really disheartened that he didn't play the second half of the year, um, which was like, and not very well. Before yeah. Then, yeah. Be underwhelming. Yeah. And, um, and they have guys like uh, what well, they had like Spence and, and Bradley Beal. And I thought, man, like this team should probably win games. And then they did. And then immediately they just didn't anymore. It was so a mirage, I, yeah. Yeah. Is it a, is it going to be a mirage this year? Like, how, how do you think it's going to shake out? I, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about their chances. I, You know, last year, they're coming from a baseline where last year they won a lot of close games, mostly early in the season. So even though they won 35, I think they, pro- they I think point differential-wise, they were much lower than that. I want to say at 31. Uh it was. It's hard to get a gauge of them. One because of obviously the meandering direction of the team, but two because they essentially had three seasons last year: the one crazy awesome start, then the one that was the the fall where Beal gets hurt, then Kuzma kind of takes over and gets hurt, and then they had the post Porzingis thing, which like nobody really paid attention to because they were not playing for anything. But Porzingis played. I think a lot of I was surprised, and I think a lot of people were surprised that he played out that whole season, given some of his issues and the state of the team. So they never had a chance to actually. Like Beal and Porzingis are not played together. I don't think even Kuzma and Porzingis have played a whole lot together. So we don't, and that's on top of where do all these like kind of young players and nobody really knows who they are fit in all that. So I think there are a lot of questions. Plus they obviously now have Monty Morris and Will Barton, who I think will both end up starting. Um, They played a lot of Porzingis at the five. They didn't do a whole lot of Porzingis and Gafford together. Gafford would be the perfect Raptor though. I have to admit he's kind of like, he has like the Raptor look. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the was it the poison pill contract that he had was yeah. that nobody could really sniff around at the trade deadline. But I was I almost wanted to pretend that it wasn't there just yeah. so I could live in. Yeah, I mean, he, I'm not saying he would like help the Raptors as, as much as you do, <laughs> but he just has the look of the he is like a he is like a Raptor build. Um, but he's not six eight, so maybe that's a problem. Uh, but yeah, so he, they didn't really play him and Porzingis all that much together. Like my suspicion is that Porzingis is essentially going to be the five. Like I think that's how it's going to work out. Um, and I think they're going to leave with that spacing, and Gaffer will basically be a backup center, and you know we'll see how that all goes. To me, the the key to their success or failure, which I, again, I am not terribly optimistic about their chances because I just, they're coming from a low baseline. I just think there are too many question marks defensively. I don't think they're going to be very good. Uh, and I think they, they even got worse, you know, losing KCP to make that trade, mm-hmm. which I think was a good trade overall. But so the only way I think their fortunes dramatically change is if Porzingis, kind of achieves what we thought he would be um and maybe having a full off season where he's not rehabbing something 
he's currently playing it, or I guess he's just done playing in World Cup qualifiers because Latvia didn't qualify for Eurobasket. Uh, he played well. He had this like he has this like evil goatee, like beard thing, like basically what you have, but not the top. <laughs> it's like, kind of got this little stubble. Um, it's interesting, but um, maybe a year not having to rehab something me and means he can fix some of his biomechanical challenges and like actually hold up for a while and you know be the player we thought he might be five years ago. I mean, that is their best chance to really make. Uh, a push. Uh, outside of that, I just don't see why this year will be any different than last year. Um, because, like, again, like, you're confused. I'm confused. Um, what is Denny Avdia? What is Rui Hachimura? Where does Corey Kisper play a lot? He he had a good stretch. Gafford seems to me have gone from being this, like, darling that we have to lock up and could be a starting center of the future to, like, what is he, like a 15-minute game player behind Porzingis? And when he plays, like, where does he get his minutes? Um, what is jo- Johnny Davis? Like, I I don't even know what to make of that. Like, where does he play? Like, I don't really see. And yeah. So I think that, that that's sort of where it comes down to. What is, what is Porzingis? Can he, can he sort of elevate himself and thus elevate the setting around him? Or is he just rich man's Andrea Bargnani now? That's, the most interesting part of, you know, like rings culture, kind of it, it gets inside of everybody because when I think of the wizards, I'm, I'm same with you. I'm not very optimistic. I see Beal there. I see Porzingis there. I see guys who are paid like stars who have, you know, and especially Beal performed at at like a a high level. What is more than being paid as a star? Like Bradley Beal is being paid as like some sort of like demigod or something, like living god of DC. The Leto the second, you know, like the <laughs> God Emperor of Dune. Um, oh, God Emperor of DC. Uh, but anyway, like it, it makes me wonder. And the rings culture aspect is like, well, this team isn't good enough to go anywhere. They also aren't doing a youth movement, really. So immediately my brain goes like Kyle Kuzma kind of rocks as a player. What's a fun team for him to go on? And I want to stop my brain from doing like, take the fun players and put them elsewhere. And that's like, how do how do you square that? The, what do you see the future as in DC? I think as far as that goes, that's a good question. I think the future is that, I mean, not to be like too cynical about it, but we've seen their history. I think the future is they want to not stink and maybe kind of be like perennial like sort of give ourselves home revenue to uh this big monumental empire that might now include the nationals they're just seeing some reporting that that they might buy them and they now own by the way i don't know if this slipped in under the radar when durant got traded they bought the rest of they now own a hundred percent stake in their regional television network did you see that oh no i didn't that's uh they, they they snuck that one in right under the Kevin Durant news. Uh, very clever. But I, I mean, I only bring that up because I think if you look at the team as like part of one member of a larger portfolio of assets, and even more so than what my um, MLSE or Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment is, because that's two teams, right? How many teams does uh, Maple Leaf sport? Four. So Four, who are the who are the other two? I believe it's the Toronto FC. Oh right, okay. And um the the Maple Leafs right. and the Raptors and the Blue Jays, I believe. They own the Blue Jays? Yeah. Uh, Which is why there's some people who are like, oh, maybe the Blue Jays spend big because there's quite literally the billions and billions and billions like this massive conglomerate backing it, but yeah, who knows. But, you know, it's actually there are a lot of parallels then because I mean, how often I'm sure a lot of times when you have that group you're sort of thinking like who's one of these franchises may be riding a certain wave or at least is what fans may think so let's put our more eggs in that basket and one other franchise is riding that wave and i don't know it sort of feels like mon the the way dc is set up is sort of similar where especially if they also own the nets where it's like we've got the caps we got the mystics we've got the Wizards, we've got maybe the Nationals, we've got DC Gaming, we've got, I don't know, all this stuff. And it's like, we see this as like kind of one big conglomerate. So it's hard to, at least for me, to not think that 
the decisions, even if they are separate entities. I mean, if you know the whole setup of the front office is like they have this weird like hybrid setup with like the medical team and I mean the front office like sort of having this like this reporting structure that's unique it's hard for me not to think like from the perspective of ownership it is kind of a conglomerate like we've got we think of these as like kind of many mem act things in our portfolio and they're and they are connected in a way that say the Cronkies owning Arsenal, Denver Nuggets, and Los Angeles Rams or whoever else they own is not. Like there is some sort of unifying factor. Uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going with all this, but I, I just sort of think that it's hard not to think of the strat, the overall strategy of how you run the Wizards within the context of all these other teams. You know, if you were just trying to maximize the Wizards' success, you maybe maybe you're more open to tanking and starting over and doing this like sort of process like rebuild. But if you're thinking of it as one part of a bigger brand, and if we are terrible, we're diluting the brand. Maybe I don't know. I'm speculating a little bit here, but um, in some ways, the Raptors are a bit of a rich man's version of what the Wizards have in that. They are, I mean, Masai made the Kawhi Leonard trade because that was like so opportunistic and just right in front of them. Good trade. Yeah. And it was for so little. But before that, I mean, I don't think that Masai or the Raptors have ever been built from a like, we need to stink to get good title maximization prospect. They always had tried to achieve a level of competency. And it just so, and and Masai Jiri is a better better at this than the, anyone the Wizards have. But it is similar in that perhaps if you look at the reluctance to trade Scotty Barnes for Durant, the reluctance to get in on Mitchell, there is a very like kind of we like the the image of what we have and we're okay being like kind of a pretty good team that maybe knocks on the door. The, the Wizards are, yeah, the Wizards are just like a step below that. I think the Wizards would love to get to that stage. Like I think the Wizards would look at the Raptors like we want to be that. They don't want to but the problem is that they obviously, instead of hitching their wagon to the best GM in the league and Scotty Barnes and a great coach or whatever, they're hitching their wagon to Bradley Beal and Porzingis. So I think that speaks a little bit to that kind of state that they're in where they're neither – you would look at it and say, where are they going? I, in some ways, you might look at the Raptors and say, where are they going? They've got some vets. They've got some young guys. And there isn't like kind of a very clear – like except to be like a pretty good – team while trying to get better. I think the Wizards are pretty similar. It's just the talent that they're doing it with is lesser than what the Raptors are doing it with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the Raptors last year they needed certain developments to happen to justify certain actions. And Pascal, like Fred had an all-star season. He he got injured and played through injury and just was had really, really tough finish. But Pascal and Fred, I think both answered the questions around their games. And that meant that you get another year. The, the Raptors front office, uh, Messiah has often said about giving these guys a platform to perform. They got another platform. This year, it seems like Pascal, if he can hit catch and shoot above the break threes, that will add quite a bit to his game and the dimensions of the Raptors offense. But as far as like on-ball creation, it's tough to see how much better he can get because he was really creative, inventive, and stuff like that. Um, Fred, you just need him to be healthy. But it seems like the Raptors hang on Scotty's development. If Scotty is a rookie deal all-star, then you can start looking at, okay, how far can this team go? And, you know, I think that makes it interesting. But if he's a guy who takes to like year five, year six, then this window is just kind of the brand. This window is just, you know, right. winning some games. It's important to take a step back from that and remember how they got Scotty Barnes, right? Mm -hmm. They have the like kind of ridiculous, like kind of absurd Florida season that was like just a total, you know, surprise. And then they get lucky and move up in the draft. So in some ways, you know, the difference between – I'm not – I mean, obviously the Raptors are more well-run than the Wizards. But in some ways, really the biggest difference between the Raptors and the Wizards is that Scott, the, the Raptors got some somewhat fortunate and unique circumstances to be in a position to draft Scotty Barnes. They still have to draft Scotty Barnes. 
But you know, what was it? What would the Raptors be if they didn't? That didn't happen. I think is an interesting question because you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, if you're looking at it cold hard facts, they did take a while. They did. They could have moved Lowry sooner. Mm-hmm. They could have started. They could have moved Fred. I mean, like it'd be interesting. Like, does Fred get an extension? I mean, I think if you're looking just at the whole, the cold hard math of it, looking at the size of the guard and the fact that his age, like that would be a low value decision. If you're well, for Pascal is extension eligible as well. Yes, right similar away. idea. Yeah. I only think of Fred because I think Fred is um, not that Pascal is not this, but Fred is very much like kind of a symbol of. The fan, the fan base, love not right. that they don't love right. Pascal, but Fred is like kind of our guy. He's an avatar for yeah, like, yeah. And in some ways, you mentioned Kuzma. Kuzma's not that, but in some ways, Kuzma emerges that figure for the Wizards last year because even though he's not part of the team, he's very much the avatar of the Westbrook trade, which I think is like you know a trade that they've been praised for myself by myself included mm-hmm. he was the one guy who came in and was like i'm really excited to be here i'm gonna take this charge that does a leader i'm gonna do the things that are tough and the, this the gritty stuff uh i'm gonna be that figure in a way that nobody else including bradley beal which i think this is one of his weaknesses as a player vocally is not that type of figure so the wizards i think are in an interesting spot where you talk about like i would love to see kyle kuzma somewhere else he's in the last year of his contract right he also plays the same position as two of their most recent draft picks very similar role and so if you're a team that i think is just out to maximize championship equity odds one obviously you wouldn't give bradley beal a contract but two you would trade kyle kuzma I think just from a cold asset perspective, his value is high. He has a pretty good contract. It seems like he's at the top of what his value is. And also, his season by the numbers is was not as good as it seemed to be. I mean, he was good. I love watching him play. My favorite player to watch in a while. But I think he was better. He wasn't as good as the reputation suggested last year. You know, A lot of the stuff he did was in line with career norms. Some things were better, but... It would be a good time to trade him is what I'm saying, but they could also extend him. And to me, like, I, I don't know what they're going to do, but like, that is a similar, I would dilemma right there. Um, as there is with Fred. And it's just, the difference is just that the, the wizards are like a cut below that in terms of their squad, but it's, there are a lot of parallels. I would say, um, I don't know what they should do with Kuzma, you know? But I think you you're you're gonna either have Kuzma there long term or like maybe like I don't see any way that Denny and or Rui become as good as they could be with Kuzma also on the team. Mm. And that's no slight to Kuzma. I think Kuzma is right now better than them. They may never be better than Kuzma. In fact, I would guess that they probably won't be, but you know, you, you you can't elevate him to that role and then expect those two guys to become the player. Like they need reps that now they've got to fit in around Kuzma. I think it's been very challenging for both of them. Um, and that's why neither of them, you really know exactly what they are right now. Rui has to phase and bridge the gap between workout ball and game speed and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, that's. And Denny needs to bridge the gap between the opposite of workout ball and workout ball. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Being like, if a you like merge guy. it, if you like slammed it together, it'd be a really good player. That's the problem. Yeah. But you can't do that. Um, so they end up kind of, I think making each other not worse, but sort of getting in each other's way a lot. I think I've noticed that over the last couple of years. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's where they're at as a franchise. Um, and we can talk about them on the court. We can talk about them, you know, what allows them to break out of that or what are their chances and how would they match up with Toronto, blah, blah. But, like, fundamentally, I think there are there are in some ways two very similar franchises, just one is a tier below the other. It's, uh, yeah, and especially, like, the when you look at, like, Denny, Kyle, Kispert, Rui, like Johnny Davis, you want to add him? They're all picked yeah, around yeah. the same spot, do yeah. similar things, play similar positions. They 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 have, I guess the Raptors overlap seems more intentional because they've branded it better and they're having more success 
whereas the wizard seems clumsy. I don't know if that's fair, but I guess I think, we, it, I think it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but again, part of that though is because the wizards have not gotten in the position to draft a Scotty Barnes. Yeah. But yes, I think there is a, there, I think it's more intentional, more act. They've activated it better. And of course the wizards weren't, didn't this didn't grow out of a title team right yeah there's not what people would call pedigree i guess um there's there's one more gary Trent jr is would be probably part of a donovan mitchell trade i'm curious what your thoughts are on gary Trent jr because he raptors fans and i do not condone this but they will oftentimes call him gary beal or compare him to bradley beal no. And yes, you're confused. So they I'm don't just play wondering. the same way. I don't understand. That doesn't even make sense. In if fact, they do that. Like, opposites. turn him into like who's like a who's like a shooting guard. Like, turn him into Gary Middleton, something like that, right? Yeah, or I don't know, Gary. Uh, I would say Gary Reddick, but that I don't. I think Gary Trent's a different player, even than him. He's, he's definitely closer to Middleton as far as like the the he's prolific in creating his own. The catch and shoot stuff is still pretty good, but. The movement threes aren't like JJ level, but I'm curious what you think about just Gary Trent Jr., the player, because he is a good player, but uh, he's definitely ripe for projections because he plays a very pretty style of basketball at times. So let me ask you, I'm going to answer that question with a question for you. Um, do you think Gary Trent Jr. is valuable because of what he does or because he has something that the Raptors don't have? So he's valuable because of what he does. It is maximized on the Raptors because it is uh, they don't have much of it on the Raptors. So it's it's extra valuable. He just had like an incredibly good he for most of the season, his compared like off the dribble guys in the mid range were like Devin Booker. I If he is going to find that consistent baseline of like great to maybe even elite shooter, then you get to have like different conversations and stuff like that because he does give you so much of that off the dribble pop isolation person like isolations percentile. He was really great last year, but he he doesn't get to the rim at all. The right. repeat these the success comes on tough jumpers. Some guys can sustain that success over a career. Some guys have big dips, like you know hitters in baseball. Bobashed of the Blue Jays is currently had an awesome year last year, is in a major dip this year. It's um, it's different, but Gary... Is that Dante Bichette's brother? Sorry, I don't really follow. It's his son. Base. It's his son. So, oh, son. Why did yeah. I say brother? God damn. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like this this old slugger up there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I follow the Mets because my wife's a huge Mets fan. Everything else, I have no idea. Edwin Diaz, his intro. I know. It's amazing. Wow. Right? I, uh, so last night, uh, we were recording this on, what, September 1st? Yeah. Uh, last night uh, was when the trumpet player was there, right? Mm-hmm. I saw that. Yeah. So I, I like got out from putting my son to bed and I was behind on the Chicago um, Connecticut WNBA game and I wanted to start it. But like I, as I'm like going downstairs because while I was watching the Mets game, I hear that happening. I'm like, I got to see this. Yeah. I have to watch this. And I just watched the whole night thing. And I looked at the time. I'm like, God damn it. I really got to start this game. <laughs> Like, Jesus, I got held up by this. Like, that's how cool the trumpet thing is. Yeah. I think uh, our kids now play the trumpet thing. They they say they play the trumpet thing uh, on our phone. So, uh, yeah, they love it. Anyway, um, where were we? What were you asking me about? Gary, Gary, is, Gary <laughs> is, is Gary as good as his uh, perceived value slash impact? Or is he maybe better on Toronto than he would be in many other places is probably your question, right? It is, although I would maybe broaden the scope of the question. You talk about his inability to get to the rim. To what degree is that because Toronto was pinning you in and having five people, 500 people around the basket versus his own ability to actually like get by someone in a more space floor? You know, so this is a not not an answer many people like, but I don't think it's due to spacing like he. No, I, one, I, yeah. I don't think it's mostly due to spacing. Is it 15%, oh, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. 30%, you know? I mean, because this is a problem with him his whole career, obviously. But um, I just think that's an interesting, like, 
it is probably mostly like because he looks better on this team because of what he does, but it may be some degree that he looks worse. And that's a question that the Raptors have to answer. Um, I mean, I would train for Donovan Mitchell. Sure. I probably would. Um, how old is he now? He's like 20. He's in his mid twenties at this point. Right. So he, he would be, I believe 23 and a bit. Wait, is that young? Seriously? 20, 23. I think he's 23 with probably over half of the year, probably closer to 24 than he is 23. I'm going to look this up. Wow. Um, Look how prepared I am for this. 23, 226 days. Shoes. He's younger than I thought. Wow. He is. When he got traded to the Raptors, he was the youngest Raptor because Malachi Flynn was older than him. Wow. At the time of the trade, believe it or not. So is it? I think the question should be less about his own ability to get to the basket and more about his ability to like. Is he a pick and roll player, or is he more of a catch and shoot player? Is he a off screen player? Is he um, like? Can you? Can you? Because part of I think what we talked about at the beginning of this show is that even if um, Pascal is going to run more pick and roll, it's still a team that like kind of if you look at the personnel, obviously. Raptors fans probably feel like they run too many ISOs, but I look at the personnel and I think that's probably going to be a high ISO team. That's just what they got. They've got a lot of guys like that. Um, can Gary Trent Jr. eventually break them out of that mold and allow them to have a little dose of that shot creation they need without getting away from what they do? Or is that not going to happen and you need to upgrade that spot for a Donovan Mitchell? Um, he, he has he has some craft. They They had like pet plays they'd run in clutch time that worked pretty well um still reliant on tough shot making but if you're a tough shot maker then that's you know that's in your bag but they they'd run a pin down um they'd like run a weave get the ball into pascal's hands run a pin down for gary to come up maybe he's open for a shot he just comes off that pin down they run like a little dribble handoff that can reset into a pick and roll whatever but Mm -hmm. it's they found success in that play type late in games probably like four or five different times over the course of the season. And he intermittently had pick and roll stuff that went well. I think that liked. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at an internal way for this team to improve, that would be something I think that they would want to tease out more Um, because yeah, I mean, Fred is obviously very good at that, but I think against the best defenses that can really swarm him, like that's just a, he's he's a short guy or a team that sort of, forces him inside the arc to finish over length. That is just something he's not very good at. Um, so and there's, so I think that if they're going to evolve as a team, there are, to go back to the very first thing we talked about in this show, the Project 6-8, like, can that limit you or does that sort of shove you forward? How do you moderate that to get to the next level? The two ways that they can do that are by making a trade or by kind of finding new things for some of their other players to do. It seems to me that it would be very easy for Toronto, I think, to rely on the crutch that this is our one movement shooter and we've got to use him the same way and we need him so badly because of how our style of play is. And we are, it is a similar version to what OG is, except different skills to kind of say this is the player you are. It would be a harder but potentially more valuable thing long term. And I think that Toronto is very good at thinking this way. So I would trust that they would be able to do this if they kept Trent to say, let's sacrifice a little bit to tease out some more skills for Trent where down the road we maybe are able to evolve and without taking too much away from the benefits of Project 6-8. And that's a key, and I think that's something that they would want to develop. Um, The other challenge, I mean, I think the other thing they need to do, and how many minutes did Trent play last year? A lot, right? Like 35 Uh, or 36. I mean, this is, this is a problem for their team in general um, that they need to work on. They, they, this is a nurse thing really. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in Trent's case, it's potentially important because he wore down, I think in the playoffs, he wore down over the course of the season. I think one of the big reasons he had that injury at the end of the year, that was a, what do you have? Like a, it was like an abdominal something or other. It was a yeah. very like kind of wear and tear style injury. And given his importance to the team, I think, I think it, and you saw, I, I just think that really sapped a lot of what Toronto was good at in that Philly series. If they have Trent healthy and they can get him through to there, that is a different series. I feel very strongly about that. And they've got to find a way to make sure that's the case. 
you know, they brought in Svima Hyluk last year. That didn't work. He's gone. Uh, they got to find somebody who can do some combination of the things that he does if they want to make the next step without trading for Donovan Mitchell. I yeah. Think. The, like, an, a super optimistic point of view is, like, Malachi has some pop. We'll see where that goes. But that's that's tough. But I, I like I like that point of view is that it's very clear the most interesting and the best version of Gary Trent Jr. is in a few years, the, he's still an elite shooter, but he's just all craft, craft and manipulation. It's just like, you know. Gary Middleton. Yeah, that, that would be that would be a really, really fun development if he just keeps, you know, upping the ante of like how he manipulates in the middle of the floor and pick up points on like these escape dribbles for jump shots and all that kind of stuff. And You got to give him the chances, though. That's the thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, and where are the chances coming from if Pascal's also getting more pick and roll touches and if Scotty Barnes is trying to do more? And if OG is sitting there being like, hey, what about me? That's the There's a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah. It's there was a there was that one Lakers team that had like a different usage leader. They were bad, but they had like a different just, Lou, which, Lou Will was on it. And they had like a different usage leader every single night. Every night it was a different like top scorer. Yeah. And the Raptors, they can't do that. But, geez, you look at what everybody wants to do. And that they've had, like, even OG, OG is a really great passer when he has advantage. Like, he's a really great read when he's in motion to find guys, especially interior passing. You're like, wow, that's interesting. We should mind that. Gary was one of the best off-the-dribble shooters in the league last year. Hmm, interesting. Let's mind that. Pascal was all NBA. Let's mind that. Fred had one of the best three-point shooting, like, he killed a drop in the pick and roll as a pull-up shooter. Let's mind that. Yeah. Scotty, mind that. There's so much. A lot to mine. And a lot of um, – and this is the problem that Toronto had last year, I think, isolation-wise, is when you're playing that way, you're not giving players enough of a flow to mm-hmm. get in a position to take advantage of those strengths, in OG's case in particular. And personnel-wise and style-wise, it's the, – the way they do that is by making you miss shots and doing it in transition half court situations. We focus a lot on how the play ends. And you and I both know this is like people who kind of talk about this. People focus a lot on how, what does the play end with? Does it end with an ISO? Does it end with this? The much, much, much more important thing, especially in today's NBA is how you get to it and how much the ball moves. Um, this was a huge – I mean, I'm only thinking about this. I don't know if you're watching the WNBA playoffs very much. Um, are you? Yep. So did you watch both of the Connecticut-Chicago games? Only the one that you missed part of for um, I Edwin Diaz. I caught up on it eventually, but it took longer than I – Or sorry, that you started later, yeah. Yeah. So in game one of that game, can it's a very classic like move-in first like kind of – jam up the gears type of matchup. Connecticut's this humongous team with uh, this very aggressive defense and this huge size and this just they're in the mud offense. Um, they are, in this example, they are the Raptors, although I know that they're not exactly the Raptors, but just walk with me here. In game one, Chicago's the opposite. Chicago's a team that like kind of when the ball is like popping around, they are really tough to stop. In game one, Connecticut was so good at just jamming the gears of all that. Everything took a lot longer. And so once that those gears were jammed, Chicago's offense like really fell apart. You realize, Hey, wait a minute. Chicago's got like one really dangerous shooter, right? Allie Quigley, everybody else. Yeah, it's fine. And Connecticut ended up winning that game. Game two, the biggest difference was every time the shot was missed, Courtney Vandersloot had the ball in the front court within three seconds. It was like I was tired watching it. Like it's it's hell when you're trying to write a note and it's like, God damn, she they're already into this shit. Mm-hmm. And it reached a point in the third quarter where just the dam broke. Connecticut looked like they were just huffing gas and Chicago got a zillion easy layups. Now, was that because Chicago said, you know, we should run more backdoor cuts or we should run more pick and rolls here? Or we should do more of this there. No, it was because it, it, it was everything was moving. So all the stuff they normally do was actually like timed right. Mm-hmm. That's why that was the change. And Toronto's got to deal with the same thing. I mean, that's that's what the essence of 
I think a lot of us miss with X's and O's. It's it's all about what you do before you get into what you do. Um, so I know I'm going way far afield a little bit with this, but that's the challenge. When you look at all these things that Toronto would want to tease out with their players and, you know, take it back to the Wizards, this was, I think, a huge problem for them is that just everything moved too slowly uh, last year. And, you know, I think some of that is personnel. Some of that is just the absence of the point guys. Some of that is because I think Wes Unsell was a little too, like, put the Greg's on, let's sort of run, let's sort of be smart. Um, and I think this might be a problem this year too. Uh, but once that happens, the line between everybody eats and nobody eats is very thin. Mm. That's what happened to the Wizards last year. And with the Raptors, with all these improvements, like that's what they need to figure out. And it's, it's hard with the personnel they have and, but they have to find a way. Um, maybe it's those stars play fewer minutes. So they have more energy. Maybe it's, you know, amping up even more the the transition game. Maybe it's Precious Achua as like this player that you've identified as like this is the this is the one that could glue all these things together if he can really develop. But that's I think the way they take the next step and that's the way the Wizards get better this year. Um and that's that's what happened that WNBA series and that you know that's the battleground and that's that's the challenge. Activity, sequencing and timing are underrated underrated aspect it's a rhythm game it's a movement game i mean it's not football you don't stand Mm -hmm. there and hike the ball and like kind of start and stop it's it's a rhythm game especially now which you will read about in spaced out um well that's i was gonna say yeah plug away this feels like the the end of the podcast yeah that's that's a big factor in what we talk about in the book is like kind of this idea that instead of trying to control chaos you are trying to maximize it I mean, that's essentially the idea of what pace and space is. As you say, we can present all these different possibilities by just playing in flow. And that is more valuable than like, oh, crap, like we're not diagramming it and we might mess a step up. That's the that's what the NBA is now. And that's how the game has changed. I mean, it's not that's not the whole book, but that's a big part. of That's one part of it. And. You know, that's the big difference. It's with the way the league is. So it's, I mean, Toronto, when you, the way I often use, and you would probably agree with this, is that when you, ISO ball is a, uh, what I really shouldn't be able to come up with my phrases, you know, ISO ball is an effect as much as it is a design. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let me go with the. Let me go with that effect. I can probably do a better word than that. You're the wordsmith here with uh, heliosiacum <laughs> uh, and all that. What was the other one you had? Um, oh, oh work, workout ball was that workout the... ball. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, yeah, that's uh, that iso ball is an effect as much as it is a design. Sometimes you try to get isolations, but usually you get isolations because everything else fails, right? Um, and so that's sometimes if you're running a lot of isolations, it was a reflection of your lack of flow on offense. And that's what Toronto's got to figure out in the half court this year to make it to the next level. And I don't know if they can do it, but if not, they'll still be pretty good. Better than the wizards. <laughs> Mike, thanks for coming on, man. It's been thanks for having an me. absolute blast. Uh, listeners, um, you've, you've heard them on this podcast before. November 1st, spaced out. Uh, where, where can they get it? Where should they be looking for it? They can look anywhere. It's available for pre-order. Um, Amazon. It doesn't benefit me if you do this financially, but it just is a nice thing. You can order it uh, by your local bookstore. Uh, there is a website, I think it's bookshop.org, that allows you to do that. You can order it directly from the publisher. Um it's again out November first. Available for pre-order. Let me make sure I get the subhead right because it's long, um, and I easily forget it. The uh, spaced out how the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. Um, coming November first, uh, and yeah, like you said before, we talked about one thing that uh, is actually in the book. In that, what was that show? February. February. Talk- yeah. There's a if you're looking for something that's maybe one small part of the book that is a good podcast to listen to i was almost promoting the book without having to finish the book so uh, <laughs> but uh yeah that's that's that i um it's with the same publisher that did seth Partnow's book jake fisher's built to lose alex wong's uh 
um, cover story, uh, same publisher. They do the instant book. So like the um, Warriors championship book with the athletic, that's them as well. They do the uh, best sports year of best sports writing that I think just got announced yesterday. Right. Uh, by Jay Adande mm-hmm. running it, the same publisher. Um, but yeah, it's, that's when it comes out. And I hope that, I mean, every time I'm on here, I feel like we talk about the same things in very strange, unique ways. And hopefully that like gives everybody a chance to think about these things differently. That's the goal of the book as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I'm, I'm excited to read it when it comes out too. That's, I think it's going to kick ass, but yeah, listeners, you should also keep that in mind as well. This book will kick ass and you <laughs> want to read it, but also keep in mind that uh, more of these episodes are coming off the top of my head, uh, Caitlin Cooper with Indiana, Jackson Frank with the 76ers. Lots Am of- I before or after Caitlin? I don't want her to show me up too much. You're you're before. Right before? No, not right before. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. So who's going after her? That I would feel bad for that person. Yeah, me too. But hey, that's a <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that'll that'll be it, listener. Thanks for tuning in, Mike. Thanks once again for uh, giving the time for this, having a, a long, we, we, we use the podcast tax as, yeah, as you said it. Right. We, we yeah. ran long, but what's uh, a, yeah. what is a number? Ex- what is the Canadian exchange rate of the podcast tax? I guess we added six minutes onto it. So like uh three per, or I guess would be. Uh, so if it's 30%. 20 minutes, so if it's 20 minutes is a tax, then plus 30% is what? I'm bad. I, I need. I can't do Me, that. We're embarrassing ourselves right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if it's 21 minutes and it's 33 percent, then it's 28 minutes. There we go. So let's do that. And and it's wow, it's pretty close. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. That's how. But that's how. It's not not how you do math. You do like guesstimates and yeah. I'm pretty is that sure just, that is that just me. They, that's how they accomplish like the moon landing and stuff. Is like rough estimates, and right? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing we do writing and talking. <laughs> Um, yeah, Mike, thanks for tuning in listener. Thanks for tuning in, whether you watched it on YouTube or listen on the podcast channel, uh, enjoy your day. I'll see you and goodbye.